Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. The rapidly changing climate is sounding an alarm to the world to step up on adaptation, to address loss and damage, and to act now. Uh, we've signed a climate convention. We've asked others to join us. Most of the observed increase in temperatures is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic GHG concentrations. Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road. And if we act now, and we act together, we can protect our precious planet. Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania and recording from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Over the two weeks of COP, I'm talking with experts from the University of Pennsylvania on a number of priority issues that are being discussed at this year's Global Climate Change Conference. In this episode, I'll be talking with three experts on cities and their efforts to address climate change. My guests are Jeannie Birch, Bill Burke-White, and Mauricio Rodas. Our topic for discussion is cities and their role at COP27. Jeannie, Bill, and Mauricio, welcome to the podcast. Jeannie, let's start with you. Could you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and your role at Penn? Sure, Andy. I'm Jeannie Birch. I'm the Nussdorf Professor of Urban Research in the Department of City and Regional Planning in the Weizmann School. And I also co-direct the Penn Institute for Urban Research, which is a university-wide center that discusses issues related to sustainable development in cities. Bill, how about you? Thanks. I'm Bill Burkwhite. I'm a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Carey School of Law. I was the inaugural director of Perry Worldhouse, the university's international affairs institute. And Mauricio, how about you? So my name is Mauricio Rodas. I am the former mayor of Quito, Ecuador. I am a visiting scholar at the Penn Institute for Urban Research, uh, the Perry World House, and the Climate Center for Energy Policy. I am uh, co-teaching two courses this semester, one with Professor Ginny Birch on cities climate finance, and another one with Professor Bill Berkey-Y at the law school on the role of national governments at the COP uh, process. Well, thanks to the three of you for taking your time out of this very busy week to talk to the podcast. Appreciate it. Jeannie, I wonder if we could start with you. Could you give us the context of cities within the global effort to address climate change? Sure, Andy. Most people are not aware of the fact that cities are very important in the context of the global concerns. Um, in particular, cities produce 70% of the greenhouse gases. They also have 57% of the world's population. And lastly, they produce some 70% of the global GDP. So they are important. Bill, let's go to you. Where do cities fit from a legal perspective in international climate discussions? Well, the short answer is nowhere as a matter of law. You know, if you've been watching the news about COP27, what you see is Joe Biden or other heads of state coming to be part of national delegations led by the foreign ministries or secretaries of state. That's because this is an international negotiation, a negotiation between national governments. Cities 
Well, they aren't national governments and they don't have any formal role at these negotiations. The negotiations are between national governments. But as Jeannie said, cities are critical both to some of the causes of climate change and certainly to the implementation of solutions. So what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years is that cities have become a very visible presence at COP, not in the formal negotiations, but in all of the events surrounding those negotiations, informing national government delegations raising concerns, being part of a much broader set of conversations. And it is really only in the last few years that governments have recognized how critical cities are going to be to any of the solutions that address mitigation or adaptation to climate change. And so here at COP27, there are mayors from cities around the world, there are city officials, there's people like us, academics studying cities, trying to figure out how to help cities get a bigger voice in the negotiations. Mayors are demanding to be part of those formal conversations. And I think we're really beginning to see some breakthroughs where cities now are being heard. They may not have a formal vote, but they are being heard. And now we have to make sure that they are looped in to the solutions that need to be implemented coming out of these meetings. Jeannie, let's jump back to you for a moment. What's been happening here at COP with subnational governments and cities? Well, as Bill said, there are a tremendous number of representatives of, of urbanists, of cities, um, here, here at the conference, and they've had a number of roles. Some of them have been actually engaged in some of the high-level events, uh, roundtables and so forth. The mayor of Kilimani was asked to address the global stake uh, takers uh, conference about how important uh, cities were as they think about uh, what what's going to come next after they assess what the NDCs have to say. The uh, Colorati was here, who's a, a expert on uh, all sorts of things with regard to cities, was also asked to address uh, the uh, members of state. So uh, those those things have been happening on the official level. On the unofficial level, uh, in the area called the Blue Zone, where the delegates have pavilions, the countries have pavilions, and various non-governmental organizations have pavilions, it's been a buzz of activity. Uh, in particular, there have been two uh, pavilions that have hosted so many of these things. First is the Resilience Hub that was created, actually, in response to the mayors and other urban folks who said, we need to be talking about cities, and they, they, the spokesmen for them have been the city champions that each country uh, who's hosting appoints uh, to talk about how to bring non-stakeholders into these conversations. So the Resilience Hub has been a center of uh, all sorts of uh, talks and, and announcements. And the second place is the multi-action um, hub, which is actually sponsored by Scotland and Italy this year, and they've been having quite a few events as well. And finally, country pavilions have been hosting a number of things. For example, uh, Mauricio and I will be speaking at, on resilience at the Thai Pavilion next week. The mayor of Tokyo talked about what they were doing with regard to uh, building a hydrogen pipeline in, in Tokyo, uh, there, uh, where Macquarie, uh, the uh, big infrastructure investment company, talked about enormously important uh, pilot project that they put together to talk about EVs for heavy vehicles in, in, in India and how they finance that with um, blended finance. And it's important that private sector is stepping up here. And the nations have been doing things as well. For example, the United States announced something called SCALE. It is a subnational climate leaders exchange. Uh, I must mention for the first time in our State Department, there is an appointment of an ambassador for subnational government. And this is a, a landmark occasion in the State Department. We'll see how that works out. But the first project they have is this SCALE. And then the people from the IPCC uh, 
provided a wonderful session last night on the summary for urban policymakers that took those three, I don't know how many thousands of pages those reports are, and digested them down to three volumes of what is key for cities, both in adaptation, mitigation, and also the science base of all of that. Uh, the Rock Arts Center, Mar Mauricio will talk more about that later, had announced some very important things on heat. Um, the a Center for Technology and uh, Networks and, and Centers, uh, exhibited in the Thai um, conversation how um, modeling for uh, scenarios for, for cities is very important, as well as how technology is being used to develop good comprehensive plans. And at the grassroots level, Sheila Patel is here with an amazing new uh, activity called Roofs Over Our Head, uh, thinking about how to do climate resilient housing in informal settlements. Remember, a th about a billion people live in informal settlements today, and they are very vulnerable to the problems of climate change. There have been about three messages that have come forward, I would say. The importance of urban infrastructure in this project of both reducing greenhouse gases and adaptation. The importance of subsidiarity, that is the uh, closeness and the agreement of all levels of government from national to state to local. And lastly, the importance of nature-based solutions in uh, providing uh, some solutions to what we need to do in the future. So it's been a busy time this week, and many more things are happening next week, culminating with the first urban ministerial meeting on November 17th. This has never occurred at uh, a COP before, and though cities and subnational governments are not active, they brought in the ministers who are in charge of cities and subnational government to make an appearance. So this is a landmark occasion too. Jeannie, thanks for running down all that. So much has been going on. Obviously, we're only halfway through. So much is yet to come. Mauricio, I want to turn to you. Uh, you focus on heat's impacts on urban environments. Can you tell us what you're seeing here at COP? Well, first of all, I think it's important to highlight that the issue of adaptation has been getting more and more attention during the past few years, which is very important because there was a clear and balance between mitigation and adaptation focus uh, before. So uh, we need to change that. And part of that trend is also witnessing how there's a greater attention on the intersection between adaptation and cities. How can cities adapt better to climate change? And a, a very important piece of this has to do with extreme heat. Why? Because extreme heat is the climate-driven hazard that kills more people than all other combined, than all others combined. Uh, it is actually called the silent killer. Why? Because uh, even though it is not visually shocking as a hurricane or as a flooding that you watch on the news, it kills actually more people than those uh, hazards. Uh, just to give you a figure, in the U.S. alone, heat kills 20 times more people than hurricanes every year. And it is not only deadly, it is also affecting uh, the economy and jobs. Uh, according to a report published by the Ash Rock Center, uh, in 2020, uh, there, were, uh, an there were estimated losses of around $100 billion uh, because of a reduction in productivity due to extreme heat. Uh, so, you know, this is the kind of uh, effects that extreme heat uh, are producing in general. Now, 
Why this is so important to be addressed in cities is because extreme heat is particularly severe in cities due to the heat urban island effect. Uh, because of you know urban infrastructure, pavements, vehicle uh, emissions, and of course, much less vegetation in urban areas when compared to rural areas, you can have temperatures being um, higher between four to six degrees Celsius when you compare uh, you know, a central urban area with a rural area. That's why, you know, all of these impacts uh, must be urgently tackled uh, in cities. And in that regard, um, there has been a few interesting initiatives to support cities to address extreme heat-related risks. Um, ARSOC has been doing some work on that regard, for example, through the City Champions for Heat Action uh, initiative, through interesting and innovative um, actionable solutions that go from, you know, a naming and ranking heat waves to implement market shading actions in cities like Freetown, Sierra Leone uh, in Africa. Now, even though extreme heat is particularly severe, as I said before, in cities, the good news is that it is also cost-effective to address in cities. There are many simple solutions that can be implemented uh, with great benefits uh, for urban populations. For example, uh, by implementing uh, initiatives like cool roofs, by you know having a white reflective painting in roofs, in buildings, you can lower inside temperatures between four to five degrees Celsius. Uh, you have things like green roofs, uh, cool pavements, and of course, uh, green spaces. Greenery is, has proven to be extremely effective to lower temperatures, to provide shading to people, and therefore to protect them from uh, extreme heat-related risks, which unfortunately are affecting the most vulnerable populations. Who dies by heat? You know, the elderly, the homeless, pregnant women are particularly affected by heat. So that's why we need to be particularly um, cautious in, being how to, in, in thinking about how to protect uh, these vulnerable groups. Um, of course, these actions demand finance. And as you know, cities unfortunately have to uh, face an international financial system that is not friendly for cities. It was designed for countries and cities having, having uh, very complicated um, challenges to overcome in order to access to international finance, in general to tackle climate change, and particularly also with regard to extreme heat. So things like the launch of the cool capital stack a couple of days ago at the Resilience Hub that uh, Jeannie mentioned is good news. Uh, a new financial facility to uh, exclusively be being channeled towards uh, implementing extreme heat-related actions uh, in cities. That's the kind of thing that uh, cities need um, this time around. And I will add to the three very important messages that uh, Jeannie mentioned at the end of her intervention, the fact that in general, cities' climate finance is something that world leaders, uh, heads of international financial institutions, international organizations, the private sector, civil society, and philanthropy should be focusing more and more. Because if we understand the pivotal role that cities are playing uh, in addressing climate change, like Ginny mentioned, they are responsible for more than 70% of CO2 emissions. So without an effective role from cities, it will be impossible for countries to meet their NDCs. It will be impossible for countries to meet the Paris Agreement. Now, 
in order for cities to play that effective role, they need resources. They need between four to five trillion dollars per year from now until 2030 to turn their infrastructure into a climate resilient one. And that will be impossible to achieve under the current financial institutions. That's why it is so important to uh, foster important reforms to that international financial architecture to make it more cities friendly. So, Gene, let me ask you, to, to finish up here, are there any concrete developments or announcements that you might expect to see by the end of this COP? Well, Andy, I don't think we'll see any concrete announcements because, as Bill mentioned earlier, the cities are not part of the negotiations. But we will see things that will affect cities, and I, particularly the loss and dam damages uh, conversations happening, if that goes anywhere. But I do want to make a point that the conversations at COP have been quite separate, thinking about adaptation and mitigation. It's separate channels. But when you look at cities, these things are happening together. For example, when we talked about the uh, responses to heat or kind of dealing with infrastructure, dealing with water or transportation, all of them have a piece that's part of mitigation and part of adaptation. Let's take mass transit, for example. Moving to mass transit will, of course, mitigate situations because you get people out of their cars. But at the same time, if you build it in a proper way, you'll be adapting the mobility system of a city because you'll move it into a, a, an area that is uh, resistant to, to flooding or resistant to heat. So so that's that's a point I think we have to make about cities and their, their importance and being a, the focus of both of these things happening together. Uh, the other thing I'd like to say is that Practically every day, there's a new paper, there's new evidence, there's no new discoveries that are coming out here at, at, at COP. And we will bring these home to Penn, and we'll use them for instructional materials. We'll use them to craft the kind of policy recommendations that we as academic, academicians can, can do and hopefully make a difference as we think about how we might influence policymakers through through our writings and policy briefs and so forth. More importantly, how we can influence the future leaders of the world, our students. Yeah, I would just add to that that we have to think about this as a long-term process. There's things I'm looking for this week as we see um, information about how the various funding mechanisms that are part of the UNFCC system uh, are evolving and will cities have access to them. But really for cities, this is a long-term game. It's about how do you get your voice heard so that over the years, cities can play a bigger role both in shaping debates around climate change and then in actually implementing solutions to them. Yeah, and I, and I would add to that that even though uh, probably there are some people that are not as much as optimist as I am regarding the role of cities at COP, I must say that I have been witnessing during the past few years a greater participation from cities at COP. That's, that's, that's very clear. You see more and more mayors attending COP. You see more and more city officials. You see more and more urban-related sessions and events at COP. And that's exciting. Of course, now it is about to translate that trend into concrete actionable solutions for cities to tackle climate change. Jeannie, Bill, and Mauricio, thanks very much for talking. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Energy Policy Now podcast recorded at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Check out Energy Policy Now on the Kleinman Center website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep up with research and events from the Kleinman Center, visit our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.